Hello and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. My name is Kalina and I'm joined as always by my co-host Brian. Hello, Brian. Hi, Kalina. Today, we're exploring a moment of travel history from our own backyard, New York City. We're going to get into the story of when Fidel Castro visited Harlem in September 1961. This was not only a big moment in travel history, Few foreign leaders, if any, had paid a visit to Harlem before Castro, but it also tells us a lot about racial politics during the Cold War. As always, before we dive into our episode, we'll share some travel news. Brian? Okay, so the first piece of news I wanted to throw your way is Michelle Obama. Oh, I just read her book. She is launching a kids' cooking show that will travel around the world to restaurants and farms and people's homes. Hmm. And it's her and puppets. Uh, I have a couple questions. Is she traveling right now to people's homes around the world? Because that seems problematic. I don't know if it's virtually traveling or, but it's the idea is that they, they're sampling different foods and ingredients from all over the world hmm. and talking about like where the foods come from, where the ingredients come from to try to like teach kids about food and also about cultures and teach them about different places in the world. That's cool. That's like a continuation of her healthy eating stuff. Yeah. Yeah, nice. exactly. Exactly. Continuation of that. It's a Netflix thing with they've got this like production deal, the Obamas with Netflix. Them and Harry and... Uh, Megan. Yeah. And do you know the puppets are like Muppets or sock puppets or? They're Muppet-esque. They're <laughs> called, the show is called Waffles and Mochi. Oh. And that's, hmm. it looks from the photos, <laughs> which I'm looking at right now, Waffles is <laughs> a kind of furry, light blue Muppet type of guy with waffles for ears. Okay. And then Michelle Obama is holding this little mochi-shaped thing with like a smiley face on it in her hand, which I think is the mochi character. That would make sense. Huh. And then there's like this bumblebee with like nerd glasses on in her over her shoulder. So maybe there's a third wow. character who doesn't get the title shout out. Huh. I feel like waffles and mochi are two foods I've never thought of together, although I could kind of see it in a way. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if the, it's about eating them together. It looks like waffles and mochi. It says, with the help of friendly new faces like the supermarket owner, Mrs. Obama and a magical flying shopping cart as their guide, waffles and mochi blast off on a global ingredient mission, traveling to kitchens, <laughs> restaurants, farms, and homes all over the world, cooking up recipes with everyday ingredients. So... There you have it. So waffles and mochi are like mm. they're like the the dynamic duo of the of the show. They're like buddies. Wow. I wonder if there's something we haven't done. Have we anything with food and travel? We, I know we've talked about it, but yeah, not really. We should something with I don't know. I was just thinking about like Julia Child. So I, I don't know, like living in France and cooking French food, but mm. something down the line. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about like Frankfurters. Or oh yeah, hamburgers, like how those names mm. got to the U.S. Good, a good investigation for another show. Yep. Okay. Second piece of travel news is something that we were we were just talking about before we started recording the. Transport Secretary of the UK announced that they were going to apply a 10-year jail term for travelers who didn't fulfill their quarantine requirements if they were coming from. So now there's this list of this red list, this list mm. of countries where if you're coming back from those countries to the UK, you have to quarantine for 10 days in in these specific hotels. Um which costs oh. like over, 
a thousand pounds, so like I don't know, fifteen hundred dollars you have to pay to like stay in these specific oh, places. The government doesn't pay for the hotel. Uh, according to this article, they do not. Wow. And jeez. And if you don't do that, they're going to they're going to throw you in jail for ten years or at least attempt to. Wow. There's been a lot of pushback. Um, this transport secretary is kind of like on the defensive right now. There's a few articles out about like how he's antagonizing everyone and saying that even after this first round of vaccines that people should expect that there's going to be another fall vaccine to like deal with variants and that no one should be really traveling or thinking about travel until then. And we're at this point where there's mm. been talk of, oh, people are starting to think about the summer and think about the warm weather coming. And should people start thinking about travel, even just domestic travel? And he's gone out recently, did some sort of press conference where mm -hmm. he was basically trying to tamp down all of that and say like, no, you can't do that. Huh. It's interesting because it feels like that's a good thing to do if you want to stop people from traveling, but it's not like the most you could do. You could just, I don't know, maybe banning travel into the UK is, is too dramatic of a step, but it's just a deterrent. It's not like a straight out ban. Yeah. Okay. Let me see if I got anything else. I think I got, oh, well, one, I'll do two things and we can, we can cut these if there's too much. So going back to things we've discussed in the past, we did an earlier episode in season one on the hurricane in Kauai, Hurricane Iniki, and just sort of like the travel economy in Hawaii generally. And they've been trying to figure out what they're doing with COVID-19. And it looks like they're trying to pass a bill now that would basically standardize the the rules across mm. all of the islands because just like in the mainland US there's all these rules in different states um, that make it hard for people to go from one place to another there's or at least confusing um, on all of the Hawaiian islands they have like different local rules um, for how long you need to quarantine if you show up depending on where you show up from and they're trying to standardize things so that a traveler who lands in, on one island and gets a COVID test at one of their official COVID testing sites would then be able to travel freely. You know, if that was negative, they'd be able to travel freely to the other islands without getting new tests elsewhere. So it sounds mm -hmm. like it's unclear if it's going to pass. There's also talk on the island of limiting travel, just like we were discussing. We were kind of pessimistic about the idea that they would figure out a way to curb over tourism, but there's lots of movement locally to try to solve some of the over tourism questions now rather than later since they are in this sort of pause phase. So it'll be interesting to see. Mm, I am really curious. Yeah. If, I know I don't think Hawaii is alone in that. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen if people are going to go back yeah. to their old habits or. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Okay, and then I think I brought a piece of travel news on the last episode or, or two episodes ago about Amsterdam trying to deal with their over-tourism and their mm. red-light district mm. causing all sorts of commotion and problems yes. for the locals. And so they're planning to open a red-light district that's in, like, a, a new area that's, like, outside the city center to try to, like, draw all of the shady tourists who are going for that to, like, a, just basically, like, get them away from, like, the nice part of town. Hmm. So I think that this is one, like, attempt to try to respond to the need to deal with over-tourism. I did read about that. I don't—where are they putting it? Like, is there— a town that's like, bring it here. Like, we want a red light district. Or is like, 
I don't know, are they dropping in the middle of nowhere? I'm curious what the end game is. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> that's a good question. They're calling it an erotic center, which <laughs> is just a weird vocabulary to use. It's dystopic kinda, yeah. Makes me think of um uh, Brave New World by Huxley, where everyone like they control people by just giving them whatever they want, like pleasure drugs and stuff. Sounds like that kind of that kind of story. Yeah, it might be. I don't know. The article doesn't get into like exactly what this new erotic center is going to look like or be like, but it might be like kind of a <laughs> I don't know if it's like a mall or sort of an enclosed place where you can just like send people. Oh, my God. That sounds really grim. Yeah. And like, who knows if people, if that will work, you know? Yeah. I wonder if there's other <laughs> red light districts in Europe where I don't, people just like gravitate to instead. If it would fill the void, so to say, instead. I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of nice red light districts all across Europe <laughs> that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I've been to the one in Amsterdam, but I think that's the only one I've been to. Cool. All right. So... That's all I've got, but you had something. Yeah. Is this article, which basically, I guess, asked Americans where they were going to go post-pandemic, and the top destination was Puerto Rico, which is interesting. But I think more interesting is that the others were Canada, Mexico, and Iceland, which suggests that everyone's kind of planning to stay close to home. Even Iceland is <laughs> close to home. So Yeah. It was also, yeah, Canada, Mexico, Japan also. So it was... The entire East Coast wants to go to Puerto Rico, the number one destination for every state on the eastern seaboard and <laughs> west all the way to Illinois, basically, is Puerto Rico. Wow. Like, it makes sense. I, I was writing something about Puerto Rico this week and I, like a Google thing popped up on the side that was like uh, flights to Puerto Rico from New York, $300. It's like, oh, that's doable. Yeah. I mean, it's inexpensive. It's part of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's... Caribbean, it's the closest beachy place you can get to besides Florida. But I think most people probably Florida's reputation is weird. But yeah. And then the West Coast wants to go mostly to Mexico. I mean, one thought I had is there are a lot of Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans in California, Nevada, up, up and down the West Coast. So I don't know if that plays into it. And they're just collecting data on people who are like, yeah, I'm going to go like visit my family or visit, you know, my country of origin. Japan was interesting. And uh, that's some weird data because Japan was like South Dakota, Kansas, <laughs> Oklahoma, Arizona, New Mexico, Arizona, huh. basically like Trump country. <laughs> Trump just country get out of here. wants to get out of here. They want to go to Japan. Wow. Huh. That is interesting. Hmm. The one thing I wanted to highlight from this survey is they also surveyed the top city that you wanted to go to. And for the most part, Cancun was the number one response. And Cancun has is, I think, right now having all sorts of COVID issues and is getting locked down tighter. But the second most sought after city. Do you want to do you want to guess what the second most was? You're never going to oh, guess. So it. it's not a predictable one. It's not like New York City. No. Is no. it Kansas City? International. Oh. <laughs> it's an international travel destination. Um, that I won't guess. So it's not obvious. Uh, I have no idea. What is it? Bora Bora, French Polynesia. Wow. No, I would not have guessed that. Huh. I don't know well, if there were just so few. There were so many different responses that like statistically, you know, whichever one got like happened to get a few people more than the other ones. But like mm. Bora Bora, I looked it up. Bora Bora is like 
basically just an island full of tourism. It's like this beautiful island. They, anytime you see a picture of like a bungalow over the water on stilts, that's Bora Bora. Mm. Oh, okay. They probably went there in like The Bachelor 10 years ago or something. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That is, Bora Bora was <laughs> for sure featured on The Bachelor <laughs> in the last probably multiple times, but definitely in like the mid 2000s. Wow. Huh. I mean, that sounds great. Love to go to a bungalow in Bora Bora. Yeah, I know. I suddenly I was like, oh, wait, maybe people people know what they're talking about out there. Yeah. Yeah. But Puerto Rico, look out, I would say. The wave of tourism when we're allowed to travel again that goes to Puerto Rico is going to be out of control. Yeah. And I don't think they're some people are super pleased with that in Puerto Rico. Speaking of over tourism. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we should move on to the episode. We discussed everything that's happened in travel. Let's do it. So the story is that Fidel Castro comes to New York City and he's there for the opening of the United Nations General Assembly. He and his delegation, um, they're staying at this hotel in Midtown called the Shelburne, but mm -hmm. things go south there. He clashes with the management. It's, it kind of seems like he there might be some like racial undertones to his mistreatment there. The Shelburne staff is just saying that they're causing problems. And one doorman later, like a decade later, said he heard stories from people who'd worked there at the time that the Cubans were, they had like live chickens in their room and they were throwing bones out the window and sort of just trashing the place. And you sent a really great article about the reaction to the Cubans. I don't know if we're going to talk about that later or not. I, I thought that was so funny. The guy, the manager of the Shelburne was... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the the owner or the manager. <laughs> it was a funny article because the language he was using was funny to talk about the entire conflict. But yeah, there was I think a lot of it actually of the conflict revolved around them asking the Cuban delegation for a ten thousand dollar deposit up front for these all these rooms because it was like mm -hmm. 20 rooms or something that they were renting out. And they wanted a cash deposit of ten thousand. The Cubans a, I think couldn't scrounge up $10,000. I think they only scrounged up like 2000 but they also thought prior to that that they had agreed to only 5000 So there was this dispute mm. about like how much they were actually supposed to put down. And then I think there was some, there were rumors about the chickens and some of those might have been like just the tabloids getting a hold of this story and trying to like make it sensationalize mm -hmm. as much as possible. But yeah, that's that's my understanding of it. Yeah, I just love the guy. I, I how it was framed, how he he says I was a patsy and it's framed as like they were trying to embarrass like President Eisenhower, you know, and he was worried that they were going to bomb him in Connecticut. I just thought all that was so fantastic. Yeah, that's true. That was hilarious that he said he lived in Connecticut. <laughs> but he wouldn't say where. <laughs> so anyway, they leave the Midtown Hotel and there's some talk about threatening to set up camp at the, at the UN or in Central Park. But eventually they go to Harlem, which was maybe Malcolm X's suggestion. But in any case, they end up in Harlem. Yeah. So I think there is some there may be some truth to him wanting the like the Castro party wanting to like cause a kerfuffle and make the U.S. look bad and like make it seem like they're being mistreated. But the threat to camp out in the park outside the U.N. was also this very of the moment Castro mm -hmm. image thing going on where they had just been in the mountains fighting for years and they were basically <laughs> like letting everyone in in the U.N. and, you know, in the U.S. basically know that like we'll camp out anywhere. We're like wow. I actually I found a quote from an article where Fidel Castro says, 
we are mountain people. This is supposedly what he told the head of the UN at the time. We are mountain <laughs> people. We are used to sleeping in the open air. So he's basically wow. just being like, we're more manly than you guys and we'll sleep anywhere. We just, you know, we just want to let you know that like you're, they're not letting us sleep in this hotel and they're being jerks about it. Yeah, but it's true. They were like they had just fought in a war for several years, you know, and lived and fought in the mountains. So they didn't need hotels. But it was also this was also part of him burnishing his reputation as an iconoclast and as an opposer of the establishment and as opposer of the imperialists. So that that all fit into this this image that he was cultivating at the time. Mm -hmm. So before we get into what happens once he goes to Harlem, why don't you talk about what was happening in Cuba and why Castro being in New York was especially newsworthy in the 60s because he had visited a couple of times before and had a bit of a warmer welcome. He kind of came under different circumstances this time. Yeah, so he had been to the United States two times, or he had been to New York City specifically twice before this. He came in 1948 actually on his honeymoon. He, he was married briefly or for like six or seven years, he was married to this woman named Mirta Diaz-Balart. And you might recognize that name because the Diaz-Balarts are kind of like the... They're kind of like the Cuomos of Florida. They're like a political dynasty. They got Mirta Diaz-Balart's brother was like part of like the political scene in Cuba before Fidel Castro. He served in high up position in the previous government under Batista, the dictator. And they exiled to the States afterwards. And Lincoln Diaz-Balart and Mario Diaz-Balart, two of his sons, ended up being in Congress, U.S. Congress. So they were congressmen. And then Jose, the third brother of theirs, was is like a TV anchorman guy. So very, very Cuomo vibe. So that trip was was just like uh, was his it was his first trip to the states, and he was an unknown at that point. He was not trying to create a revolution. Um, and then when he came in 1959, it was post the revolution taking over in Cuba. So he was already this well-known figure uh, all over the world. It was kind of this sensation. But in 1959, the difference between then and just a year later in 1960 is. In 59, the Cuban revolutionary government hadn't yet imposed all these sorts of maneuvers that they would impose over the next year on the United States. So he was still this unknown quantity. They were thinking, okay, he's taken over Cuba. Maybe we can bring him under our wing. Maybe we can work with him. Maybe he talks a big talk, but he'll actually eventually just realize that working with us is the better political move. And over the subsequent year, it turned out he was like, no, I'm not going to work with you guys. In fact, I'm going to appropriate all of this land. Um, so all of these U.S. companies lost land and lost property. The U.S. had huge sugarcane business in Cuba. The U.S had all sorts of business interests on the island. They lost all of that. I'm curious, you might not know this, it's a bit unrelated, but at the same time, or like before this, the U.S. had done all these things in Latin America, like in Guatemala, they sort of orchestrated this this coup. But was Castro aw like aware of things like that? And like, did that harden him against U.S. interests specifically? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah a big okay. part of his rhetoric was about 
the bullying that the United States did internationally mm. in Latin America, especially and especially against left wing governments. Mm. He was okay. huge critic of of that and saw that as pretty hypocritical for a country that thinks that it's like promoting freedom, quote unquote, or, you know. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So so over that year, between 1959 and 1960, they seized banks. They appropriated lots of U.S. land or land that had been owned by U.S. companies and corporations. And then they also, because the U.S. then responded and retaliated and said, OK, well, we're going to shut down borders and, and, you know, we don't like that. He was basically painted into a corner and ultimately started to align with the Soviets. And so by the time he shows up in 1960 for this U.N. assembly, hmm. the, the Cuban government has officially aligned with the Soviets. And that is, of course hugely problematic for the United States um, to have this Soviet-aligned country right in their backyard and, you know, all the things that go along with it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, by 1960, they were persona non grata. They were being treated as such right. um, for, for those reasons. Yeah. So, so he makes this decision to go to Harlem and it's, he says when he's going, or maybe once he's there, he says he feels more at home among the poor and humble people of Harlem than the implication being the midtown, you know, white people. Yeah. Um, and this is a really interesting point because Castro's done a lot about race in Cuba upon taking power. Yeah. His move to Harlem also fit in with the Cuban revolution's rhetoric around and actions around racial equality and discrimination in Cuba. Specifically, they, you know, there were private clubs that didn't allow Cubans of African descent to become members. There was a really bad, just the discrepancy between the rich and the poor. The, the rich in Cuba were very much the whiter skinned people, um, Spanish and European descent descendants. And then the underclass and, and the vast majority of, of the poor and impoverished were Afro-Cubans who had slave descendancy and who still, in many cases, were all working in the fields working on sugarcane plantations and sort of in other agricultural efforts. And the Cuban Revolution did uh, made a big push to try to equalize everyone as much as possible, which meant, you know, bringing up a lot of the poorest classes, um, mm -hmm. which disproportionately affected Afro-Cubans who were able to suddenly have a healthcare system that was functioning for them or, you know, see doctors for the first time in these rural towns and earn enough money to buy shoes for their children. And then when they meet, they have a really interesting exchange, I think, Castro and Malcolm. Um, Malcolm, he's this great line. He says, downtown for you, it was ice. Uptown, it is warm. <laughs> and Castro says, yes, yes, yeah, we feel warm here. And Malcolm talks about how people... Black, black Americans are not as swayed by propaganda as people downtown, again, white people. And Castro says, which I also, I also think is an interesting line, he says, Cuba's accomplished in 18 months what you are still trying to do for 400 years. So you can, I, I can definitely see why this would be an appealing thing for both Malcolm X and for Castro to meet. They're speaking like the same language. Yeah. Yeah, they're very much two, two people who have become well-known but are still on sort of like the fringes of legitimacy and, um, and working towards similar goals. Yeah. One thing that I thought was also interesting from the articles that I was reading was when they agreed to allow Fidel Castro and the Cuban party to come to the United States, 
they put a limit on on Manhattan on their visas, so they were not. And this is something that they did to the Soviets as well. So the Soviets couldn't travel outside of Manhattan, and because Castro is now aligned with the Soviets, when Castro came to Manhattan, he was not allowed to travel outside of mm-hmm. Manhattan. And I I happen to know a guy who worked in the Cuban diplomatic corps for the UN and was doing a one-year stint in Manhattan this past year. And he mentioned to me also that he was not allowed to leave the confines of Manhattan for the entire year of his of his stay. So it lives on to this day. Mm, such a weird rule to me. It just <laughs> strikes me as so bizarre. I mean, and we've talked about it before, but not that there's a lack of things to do in Manhattan. And if you were stuck anywhere in the world, it's a good place to be. But just how easy it is yeah. to walk off the island. <laughs> like there's all these bridges and ferries and obviously the subway. Like, I don't know. It's just like, it just seems impossible to enforce in Manhattan, not New York state or something. It's just, it's a funny role. Yeah. Yeah. It's feels very much punitive in nature. Yeah. There's Malcolm talks about this in his autobiography and says that the State Department was trying to confine Castro to Malcolm, thinking that they were, you know, winning this war against him. But they Malcolm says they never dreamed he'd stay uptown in Harlem and make such an impression among the Negroes, which is exactly what he did, which is probably what the State Department wanted to avoid. Yeah. And uh, it, <laughs> yeah, the, it seemed like a huge the whole thing was a huge PR blunder. From the start for the U.S. State Department, they were from the beginning when the Cubans were having trouble finding a hotel. It seemed like they were they actually wanted to portray the United States as being hospitable despite their differences. They wanted to say, oh, yeah, we're going to let you come. We're going to let you stay here. But then when they got word that all these hotels were not accepting the reservation from from the Cubans, they were like, oh, like this is making us look bad because it's making us look not hospitable. And the Cubans kept saying back to the State Department, like, let's look, your guys, your hotels aren't letting Mm -hmm. us stay with them. That's not very nice of you. And we're going to tell people about this, you know. So they desperately that first Shelburne Hotel where they stayed, they had to convince that guy, that guy that lives in Connecticut, but won't give his address. (laughs) He had to go to the State Department and say, listen, these guys want to stay here. Is that okay?" And they were like, yeah, yeah, we want you to take them because no one else is taking them. And don't worry, you're not like being a traitor for taking them. And he could. And the owner said, listen, I want that in writing. I need something written from the State Department that so that I can show people later that I wasn't like a traitor. Um, because there was so much anxiety over these Cubans. Um, so, yeah. I just realized um, that was an election year. Oh. And I, I, right? So that would have been Nixon Kennedy. I didn't hear a lot about if either of them weighed in. I think they probably would have said the same thing, which they were anti-communist, of course. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how this fit in with the, with the election. But yeah, the election was going, was like a month later. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean it was a it was a wild time and like there were even even if they hadn't moved up to Harlem, I mean there were protests going on because there were Cuban Americans who had already exiled, left the country and you know, in the years around when the revolution mm. took over a year year prior. And so there were anti-Castro people protesting and picketing outside and there was some kerfuffle between pro-Castro Cubans and anti-Castro Cubans in which a woman was killed, like a young woman. So oh, there were there was all sorts of stuff going on. It was a bit of a it was it was mm. a chaotic mess. One other thing that I noted that was really interesting was because Cuba had now expropriated all of this land from US businesses and canceled all these contracts with various US companies, there were all these suits, uh, legal suits out 
um, against the Cuban government for owing mm. these American companies, like various different American companies, money. Um, so when the Cuban plane landed with Castro in it, it was an Air Cubana plane. It was a, it was <laughs> property of the Cuban government. And after the delegation got off the plane, the plane was seized legally seized by law enforcement and held as like property, you know, as like owed property or owed, you know, value for some of these U.S. executives who had filed claims to get their money back from the Cuban government. Yeah. So he ended up, I think Castro ended up having to fly home either on Khrushchev's plane or on a plane that Khrushchev (laughs) and the Russians provided for him. Wow. I just, it really feels like the U.S. did completely bungle this like if this is i guess maybe they're like whatever he's a he's in the soviet's pocket we're not even gonna try but yeah you get their plane gets seized the hotel there's problems with the hotel it just seems like they weren't making their best effort to yeah yeah they were running circles around them they even they also so castro wasn't invited to a luncheon with Eisenhower that all the other latin american delegates were invited to and he instead of going he wasn't invited to it so instead of doing that he went back up to Harlem and invited all of the hotel workers, African-American hotel workers at the Teresa to eat lunch with him and have this big press conference where he made a big deal about Mm. how he was eating with the humble workers while Eisenhower and all these other delegates were Mm. at uh, this fancy lunch. Hoity-toity. Yeah. But that also kind of gets into a little bit of what you were looking into about just like the Cuban government's alignment with like sort of this, the workers and that the socialism of the whole thing becoming a part of this and sort of Cuba getting swept up into the whole Cold War situation that was going on. Yeah. It's so interesting because the Cold War is seen as such a two-sided conflict, but there was this movement of... And this, I think, is where the term comes from, quote unquote, third world nations deciding that they were not going to be either in the Soviet or the American camp. They're going to be in their own camp. And actually, I believe the non-aligned movement, they're still still around. It's still an organization that, uh, again, I I feel like third world countries is maybe not the right term anymore, but they've banded together. Yeah, I think it's initially it wasn't it was used just to describe countries who weren't aligned with either the united states or the soviets it was Mm -hmm. like the third way sort of it was like that was the idea but it's come to have like negative connotations i think yeah being third right yeah i mean it's interesting that this was happening at the time and this was something that malcolm x was definitely tuned into mm-hmm. he actually went to indonesia in 1955 to the uh, to the bandung conference which was a meeting of these nations like talk about working together working apart from the soviet or um american dichotomy mm-hmm. and actually we did an episode on malcolm because after that or in the late 50s he travels all over the place he goes to ghana and sudan and iran and egypt he's all over the place and he's defining this thing that's existing in the world at the moment which is that outside of the soviet and american influence people of color who are gaining power rapidly in the world because of this post-colonialism post-world war ii movements you know and as well as in the united states at the beginning of the civil rights movement that they can work together. And Castro says to Malcolm, significantly, I think, he says, we are all brothers, the new nations, and we in Latin America are all African-Americans, which is probably exactly what Malcolm wanted to hear, that like, if the system's not working, you know, you build your own system. So that's what I think they were trying to do. And actually, a lot of other world leaders who are also in town in New York also go to Harlem. Um, Leaders from Ghana, Egypt, and India go to Harlem, as do the Soviets, Mm -hmm. which, (laughs) of course... 
Um, Did you see that that picture from that one article of Khrushchev with the biggest grin on his face? <laughs> he just looked like he was so happy going up there meeting Fidel. Like this was just like oh my gosh, the greatest yeah. stroke of luck. I'm sure. I'm sure he felt great about it. I, the Cubans wanted to go see the Soviets um, on their fancy digs in Park Avenue, and the Soviets go, no, 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 no. We're, we'll come to Harlem yeah. because they knew that, you know, in the world, the world stage where they were fighting this sort of, I mean, obviously a cold war with the U.S., but um, a cultural war that would be such a boon for them to go to Harlem and be seen with with not maybe not with Malcolm, but like with Castro and, and in a black neighborhood. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, I mean, we were talking about uh, uh, earlier this week just about how Russia and Cuba are kind of strange bedfellows and like is it's an odd pairing. They're very different culturally, but Cuba and Castro was just such a the Russians are just such white peoples of the like the north and of like Europe. I mean, I guess Russia is in Asia and so Russians are Asian, but their connection to like the non-aligned countries and and the countries, you know, in Latin America and in Africa that were sort of being fought over was pretty limited. And so Castro was kind of the connection to that. Castro was a huge supporter of revolutionary movements and leftist movements in Africa. He was a huge supporter of Nelson Mandela in South Africa and anti-colonialist movements in Latin America and Africa. And so that was like a way for Russia to kind of get in good with that whole section sector of the world. And without that, you know, they were just these kind of Russians, you know, they didn't have much of an in, you know, <laughs> they're just Russians. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the U.S. had this huge blind spot is the term that comes to mind, although I'm not sure that's exactly what I want to say. You know, with race in the 1960s, there were people like Hubert Humphrey, who, as, as we all know, ran for president in 1968, was LBJ's vice president, who says, you know, if we don't step it up with race, this is going to become a talking point for the Soviets. We've got to treat people well at home or no one's going to believe we want to do it abroad. But the U.S. doesn't do very much about race um, in the 50s. This starts to change in the 60s, of course. But they just there's this I mean, Humphrey's absolutely right. How can you preach that this is the way that we should all live? We should all be Americans if you're going to treat your own people poorly. And the Soviets take advantage of that. And, you know, Malcolm and Castro take advantage of that. So it's kind of absolutely the Cubans, certainly even to this day, I mean, Cuba looks at America and says, listen, like we are attempting to create an equal society where all peoples, all races and everyone and and they are they're like, look at the United States like they to their own people, Cuban, the Cuban propaganda in Cuba is like, look at like Chicago, look at New York, look at these American cities where like if you are not a rich white person, life is not good. You do not want to live, you know, and there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, it's more complicated. And obviously, like, that's this line that they're using to exploit that. But um, but no doubt, like, yeah, the racial there's it's interesting psychological fear in Americans that is, I think, so racially based in that if you equalize people, if you give people equal health care, for example, that's bad and like socialist. But it's really this weird, like, I, I think it has its roots in like this racism thing where like we can't all be equal. It's better to be like one above. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just interesting, though, that this moment, I think, you know, it just cast her going to Harlem 
it it reflects so much of what's going on in the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. There's also some question about whether Castro was playing up this move to Harlem and playing up this idea that they weren't being welcomed in the U.S. Like, mm-hmm. oh, these hotels are so expensive and, like, no one's going to let us stay there. How can a, a city that's supposed to host the United Nations be so unhospitable to all of these delegations? And there was this idea maybe floating around at the time that the Russians were trying to to get the UN to not be based in New York City, to not be based in the United States. <laughs> they were like not happy about that in the first place, that somehow this supposedly international governing body happened to get placed in New York City instead of some more neutral right. area for like, you know, the Cold War sake. So it could be that Castro mm-hmm. was aware of that or that had been discussed with the Russians and that this was this. And, you know, the U.N. was younger. And so it maybe it was a little more plausible that the U.N. could eventually move or mm-hmm. the U.N. wasn't so established in New York City yet. So I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 chess, political chess going on. Um, all right. So let's let's wrap things up then by talking about what goes on with Cuba and Castro after this visit. Yeah, so the visit, once once the big brouhaha around the move to the Hotel Teresa kind of settles down, things kind of calm down a bit. Castro gives a big speech. It's very long. <laughs> it kind of sets the stage for this idea that Castro gives long speeches. I think it's like four hours um, long. It's like... Yeah, it was four plus, which like isn't even his longest speech. He's given speeches that I think are in the six hour range many times, I think. But yeah, you know, he and he says his piece. He he really doesn't mince words and and really goes back all the way to uh, the United States coveting Cuba in the early years of of after the United States was founded. There's some quotes from John Quincy Adams talking about how Cuba is like this piece of fruit hanging on the tree just waiting to be plucked by the United States. So he Mm. brings that up and and kind of defends their stance against the United States and, and then goes home, apparently on maybe on a Soviet plane. And, you know, Castro continues to be this boogeyman throughout mm. the entire second half of the 20th century. And he continues to antagonize the U.S. He continues when he comes to the United States or to New York City for U.N. assemblies to visit Harlem to kind of hearken back to this trip. So he visits again multiple times. And I think his last visit... I think he visits in 1995, and then maybe his last visit Mm. is in 2000 before he gets too sick to come. But this trip to Harlem lives as this legendary thing that Fidel did, and the presidency gets passed on in Cuba to his brother, Raul Castro, and then later to the current president, this guy named Miguel Diaz-Canel. And the first thing Miguel Diaz-Canel does as you know, new president, doesn't have the standing and stature of, of Fidel, but is trying to kind of like live in these giant footsteps. Um, When he comes to the United States, to the UN, the first thing he does is he goes up to Harlem and gives (laughs) a little speech at a church. This was just a few years ago. So yeah, the legend lives on. Mm. Most recently, I think, echoes of the trip to Harlem came up in the Georgia runoff with Raphael Warnock. Um, I found an article on foxnews.com about how Raphael Warnock had worked at the 
one of the churches in Harlem where Fidel spoke um, on one of his later visits in like the 90s. And sort of the article sort of used that to tie Raphael Warnock to communism, socialism, Fidel Castro, dictators. That's so funny. I just I just find it. It's it's so it's hilarious that that it's Cuba, Castro, communism. These words are still so loaded. Yeah. Still. And why? But they are. Wow. I guess loaded depending on maybe what you read. But it's funny that Fox News went for that and maybe trying to fear monger about Raphael Warnock. Yeah. Very potent stuff still. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he was, you know, Castro was going directly at American hypocrisy and, you know, he was really trying to stick it to us. So it was like it made it made a lasting impression. All right. Are we, uh, is it that time? I think it's that time. Wow. We had a lot to talk about in this episode. Yeah. (laughs) That's our show. Thanks for listening. Please, of course, if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast castifier you use, leave us a review. Send us an email, yesterdayintravel at gmail.com. Twitter us at yesterdayintrav. And uh, we'll be back next week with Soviets Go to Space. And uh, that's it. That's it. That's all we got. (laughs) 